Hello and welcome to the Long Game Podcast. I'm your host, Mehdi Yakubi, and this is the Long Game Podcast. In each episode, we explore the ideas, technologies, and businesses that will help us overcome the challenges of our time. The episodes feature long-form conversations with tech industry leaders, scientists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Some guests will be well-known, others will be soon, but they all share a profound similarity. They have demonstrated unusual insight and see today's challenges with a unique lens. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm building Lifetizer, a product to help people optimize their blood glucose levels for better health, improved energy levels, and optimize longevity. And I sent a weekly email newsletter called The Long Game. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Joey Krug. Joey is the co-founder of Augur, the co-founder of Eco, a new cryptocurrency, and the co-chief investment officer at Ventera Capital, one of the largest cryptocurrency and blockchain-focused asset managers. Joey is the specialist for everything related to crypto and prediction markets. Augur, the decentralized betting platform he co-founded, is one of the most promising projects of the recent years. In this conversation, We cover everything related to prediction markets. We start with what Joey would like to achieve with Augur and what are the current challenges. Then we cover the question of the truth and how prediction markets could help us find it. We mention all the other underrated areas where prediction markets could have an impact. Please enjoy my conversation with Joey Krug. I am here with Joey Krug. Joey. Welcome to the long game. Thanks for having me. Well, I know that you ha- you must have this question all the time, but um, could we start a conversation just by explaining a little bit for people what are prediction markets? Yeah, so prediction markets are basically this tool that allows you to create financial markets on really kind of any sort of subject, any sort of real world event. And people can basically speculate whether they think that event is going to happen or not. Um, the simplest way to understand what a prediction market is, is to just think of an example. Um, you know, a good example is, will SpaceX, you know, will their next rocket launch uh, successfully make it, you know, pass the launch sequence? You know, so will the rocket actually launch, yes or no? And then people can basically bet on yes or no. And the current, the reason they're called prediction markets is the current market price is equivalent to the odds that it will actually happen. So if you can buy yes at 60 cents, that means the market believes it's a 60% chance that the rocket will launch successfully. Got you. And um, could you explain a little bit what uh, what is the goal that you're trying to achieve uh, with Augur? And uh, where are you in uh, in the journey to, to achieve this goal right now? Yeah, so the, the goal with Augur is to build this platform where people can create their own prediction markets sort of on, on whatever they want. Um, and so Augur <clears throat> is a prediction market platform. Uh, it's built on top of this blockchain called Ethereum. And you know, the idea behind it is if you look at, you know, what Bitcoin did, it just enabled these kind of global, global financial transactions at uh, very low fees with sort of no limit to the transaction size. It costs the same amount to do a transaction for $1,000 as it does for 100000 um, Augur is kind of trying to take those same ideas and apply them to prediction markets. And the idea is that 
you should have a much more kind of deeper global liquidity pool um, in the long run. You know, I'd say today it's it's still very early. Uh, today, you know, centralized markets, things like Betfair, have far more liquidity than Augur does. Um, but you know, I think long run will will eventually get there. Um, it requires things like blockchains need to scale first. Um, you know, prediction markets inherently involve it's basically trading, and so Ethereum only does about ten transactions a second today. Um, that's like a big problem that that needs to be kind of overcome. And then there's also just like general kind of easier experience difficulties using blockchain tech that need to be overcome um, because the key kind of concept behind Augur is that everything is decentralized end to end. So you know you're never you're never talking to a server that we run or anything like that. Uh, the whole app sort of runs uh, within your own local browser. Got it. So could you could you expand a little expand a little bit on the, the the why right now it's still a little bit more expensive to uh, to bet on a platform on on a decentralized platform rather than a centralized one, and what 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 are the steps needed uh, to uh, to really get uh, uh, Augur to be a really cheap and uh, get uh, a wide market adoption? <clears throat> yeah. So. Um... So basically what, what's needed is, so there's a few different costs when using something like Augur. Um, one cost is um, you actually have to pay like the Augur system itself for it to run. That That's very cheap. Like the cost for that is in is in basis points. It's, it's pretty small. Um, the other cost is it costs money to do a transaction on Ethereum. So when you want to actually place a bet or place a trade, um, say someone is saying, Hey, I'll, I'll buy Trump at 60 and you're saying, that's great. I would love to sell you Trump shares at 60, basically saying, I want to bet on Biden. Um, then that's going to cost you money to do that transaction And today. Um, <clears throat> those transaction costs can vary kind of fairly wild, wildly. Um, it might be anywhere from like $5, uh, depending on if Ethereum is very congested, it might be $50 just to do that trade. And so kind of how expensive it is depends on how big of a trade you want to do. The thing is, though, with prediction markets, the average trade size is fairly small. Um, you know, like in a traditional site, the average person might bet, you know, $500 or something. And so if your fee is $25, that's a 5% fee, which is very expensive. And so once the scalability problem is sort of solved, those fees should go down from $25 to like one to two pennies. And at that point, um, then it would be much cheaper. And what's the the time scale regarding those uh, technological advancements? Do you think that it's uh, going to be something uh, that we're going to reach uh, in the coming months, coming years? Yeah, I'd say pr my my bet is sometime within the next year. So um, there's a bunch of different projects working on on solving this problem that all have pretty different approaches, and uh, a lot of them are supposed to launch within the next you know couple quarters. Got you. So there is this question. You said that uh, basically when you do a bet on Augur, Augur doesn't do anything. And there is this question of, imagine, so if you bet on the presidential election, um, how does the system get the information when, for example, Trump is, Trump is elected or Biden is elected? How does the real life information goes into the decentralized system? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that, that's sort of like probably the toughest problem, um, at least the toughest tech problem that we had to solve when, when building Augur. And so the way it works is 
Well, first off, the natural thing people say is, well, can't we just like pick a person and have them submit the result? You know, obviously the problem with that is that person can get it wrong. Um, they can get it wrong on purpose as well. They could be paid to get it wrong. They can be bribed. Um, or they can actually just bet on Biden and say Trump won and say Biden won or the reverse, even if it's not true. Um, and so they have incentive to lie. And so you can't just have one person do it. So then the next obvious thing is, okay, well, you know, can you have a group of people do it? Um, the thing with blockchains though, is since they're decentralized and since you can create pretty complex financial agreements, you know, even a group of people can, can do certain things to collude together to, to provide a bad result. And so really you have to have it such that it works with really solid economic incentives. And so, and it, re it should really work where the person has the incentive to, to report the result honestly, you know, regardless of whether it's 10 people reporting it or a thousand people, or even just one person who uh, is, is very wealthy. And so the mechanism we created is basically there's this token called reputation. And when you report the result for a market, you stake your reputation. In exchange for doing that, you get trading fees that flow through Augur. So that's sort of your financial incentive. Uh, that's your positive financial incentive. If you report against the consensus or you basically report inaccurately, uh, you lose reputation. So that's your disincentive to reporting dis dishonestly. And um, the way it works is Augur has basically a series of dispute rounds. So you could imagine um, the Trump-Biden market, say you know, a week from now, Biden ends up winning. Somebody could go to Augur and say, okay, Trump won. Then somebody else is going to say, you know, that's not right. Biden won. And they basically stake rep, stake a larger amount of rep saying the opposite. And these markets can kind of go through multiple dispute rounds where eventually either one side wins, one side has more stake and the other side just kind of gives up. Or see people disagree so much that people are willing to stake large amounts of rep on it. Eventually the system has this concept of forking where the system can actually split into two networks where there's like one version of Augur that claims that Biden is president and one version of Augur that claims Trump is president. And as a user and as someone who's creating markets in the future, um, you know, you basically need to decide which of these universes you want to belong in, like which one actually reflects reality. I doubt that will ever happen, um, but it's a, it's sort of like a, it's a credible threat. It's kind of like um, yeah. the equivalent of like, you know, nuclear weapons and, and, yeah. and like geopolitics. It really seems like something that could happen these days with uh, this post-truth era where people seem to... Uh, like th there is this impossibility of uh, for people to to agree on anything so this is a scenario that that looks rather possible these days but uh, i wanted to uh, to explore a little bit uh, where we could use prediction markets to uh, to improve society because um most of the time people um kind of put prediction market in the same uh, basket than uh, than gambling and it gets this uh, this negative connotation and i want you to explore all of the the, the ways we could use prediction market to uh, to fix some problems in in society so right now there is this huge problem of uh, truth in uh, on social media and um so do you think that a platform like augur could uh, could help uh, fix the, the the truth problem on on the internet yeah, it's a really, it's a really tough problem. I think, um, so th there's certain things prediction markets and, and like the Augur Oracle system is quite useful for, you know, like, so like, say, say there's like some, some event that's going to happen. Um, and like, 
and you suspect that after the event, people will debate the result a lot. Um, and we just talked about the election. There's other events too that I'm kind of drawing a blank on, but like, this is a pretty common thing these days. So like, yeah, you could have an auger market on whatever that event is. And, you know, the auger Oracle system is going to use a lot of financial incentives to actually, you know, decide what the, what the truth is there, what actually happened. Um, and one thing that's pretty interesting is, you know, even though people sit, like to say that we live in like this post-truth era, you know, truth, truth tends to come out fa- fairly quickly, e- even in today's time, when you throw financial incentives in the mix, because exactly. um, people don't necessarily hold on to their beliefs as strongly when you ask them to put large sums of money on the fact that what they're saying is actually true. And so I think that Augur is useful in that sense, because it can really, it can really sort of draw, draw out the truth in a way that like, you know, tweeting about something isn't going to really, you know, people might, these days people aren't going to believe each other on Twitter, but if there's like, you know, a million dollars on the line saying that some fact is true, and if it's not true, you can actually win money by disputing it. Um, that's, I think, a, a fairly robust system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, prediction markets are uh, kind of skin in the game as a service. If you have to put a monetary uh, amount behind your tweets or behind uh, behind your opinions, uh, people would do much more uh, research. They, they wouldn't uh, retweet so easily. They wouldn't... Uh, uh, believe some facts so easily. So, so it seems that putting a monetary, um, a monetary amount on on a on a specific uh, belief could really help uh, fix this this problem where where people um, share s- certain things without even uh, double checking. And do you mm-hmm. think that uh, do you think that it it will get a wider adoption in the the current social media or? We're gonna have to create new social media with uh, with uh, decentralized betting platform um, created uh, from uh, from day one. Yeah, I think. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's there's some stuff you can do with the current social media. Um, like I saw somebody actually made like a little integration where like you could bet on Augur from from Twitter. Um, I think they just use like a Chrome extension or something. But um, you know, there's, there's interesting things that you could you could envision happening there. Um, I mean, I guess one big problem with today's social media that I've started noticing very recently is, um, I remember actually, like if you reverse like three or four years ago, you know, I had lunch with one of my friends from China and, and, you know, she was kind of showing me like on WeChat, how if you say certain words on the, on the Chinese version of the app, it gets censored. Right. And we were kind of laughing, like, you know, that would never happen in the United States and, and how it's interesting that, that China does that. And then, of course, it's pretty shocking, you know, now it's like three years later. And if you actually send certain things in Twitter DMs, it actually literally gets censored. There's certain tweets where um, if you navigate to the to the URL, it literally says this tweet is unavailable to you um, because the tweet has been censored. And um, so that's like a thing that, you know, in the past, I thought, okay, there's no need for any new social media platforms because most people don't care about privacy. And like, why would you, you know, and so like, it's going to be tough to migrate people to a new platform where the only benefit is privacy. And as censorship starts to ramp up, though, I think that might actually change. Um, like, um, you know, I would actually more seriously consider moving off Twitter if they continue to ramp up censorship. Um, like, even if the content that they're censoring is stupid content, um, like, I don't care. It's just like the concept of, you know, it, it's kind of absurd to me that they're censoring like 
ba- pretty basic like news story style content. Um, and so I think that's kind of my view on it is like, there may actually be a, a more urgent need for new social media platforms than there was even a couple of years ago due to this additional problem. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, th- this question of, of censorship is really going to be the, the the question of our time. When you see uh, right now Facebook and Twitter um, being a little bit aligned on on on, uh, on this censorship, it really makes you wonder what's going to be what are going to be the next steps regarding uh, regarding social media. I wanted to uh, to also explore uh, whether do you think that prediction markets are going to be useful in the context of uh, of climate change. I saw some initiatives, uh, some people uh, working on on building prediction markets for climate change. Is it something that you're familiar with? Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, that, that that's an interesting one. Um, I think so. I think there's like so like you know we talked about like the kind of like truth use case, but there's also like this other area of use cases which I think climate change markets fit into, which is like figuring out better ways to do things, figuring out like what's a policy or, or approach you should take towards a problem. Um, and markets are, markets are good at that. Um, cause they're really good at just kind of like siphoning out, um, information from, from any situation. And, um, I think the, the example, my favorite example is like the, I think when the challenger explosion happened, um, I forget if it was Challenger or Columbia, whichever one had the faulty O-rings. Um, you know, it took Congress like a six-month investigation to figure out what company manufactured the O-rings, um, but it took Wall Street a few hours. Um, there were like three or four companies that made, made them, and you know, all of them went down the first hour, and then within six hours, you know, three out of the four went back up, and one of them was still down, and that was the one that that made them. And so, if you take that kind of concept, what else can you apply it to? Well, you can use these markets to make predictions about things like, you know, if we do this certain policy, which policy is more likely to be effective, um, which definitely is something that applies to climate change. You could also do it for things like, you know, of the different approaches to combat climate change, like which one has like the best ROI in terms of like how much dollars it takes to actually do it and how short of a time horizon you can actually have an impact on. Um, you can have markets on things like, how much adoption will there be of like solar versus wind versus like, you know, hydropower versus whatever uh, on like a per region basis and figure out like what the market thinks is most practical for that region. And then maybe you actually invest more in that area and sort of recursively make that happen. Um, There's a lot of interesting things you could do there. I guess the last area in climate change that's kind of interesting is like you have all these climate models that are like have very widely varying ranges of, of accuracy. And so one thing that would be cool is like, you know, what if you had scientists like bet on how effective they thought their climate model was, um, or even like, you know, how effective they thought certain subcomponents of, of the model was like, there's probably some elements of their model where it's sort of just voodoo and like, it feels good, but it like, they don't actually have any conviction behind it. And there's probably other aspects of, of their models where they're like pretty confident in it and think that like, yeah, that makes sense and, and should work. Um, the, the deeper you get, though, the harder it is to have, like, liquidity around this stuff. But um, those are kind of some of my thoughts there. Yeah. So Robin Hansen wrote a lot about uh, prediction markets. Um, are you 100% aligned with, with him on prediction markets? And if not, uh, where do you disagree with, uh, with him and, and where do you agree with him? <clears throat> 
Yeah, I agree with most of his stuff on on prediction markets. Um, he's kind of the the one of the intellectual godfathers of the space. Uh, you could you could call him. And um, I think I, mean, I think the only thing is like I'm not sure like how you know how useful stuff like futarchy is in practice. You know, the concept of like you have prediction markets on like two policies, and then like you know you get the government to decide which one's better because of it. Um, just cause there's, there's so many kind of unknown, unknown variables and so many unknown second order effects. Um, that I think it's, it's tougher for markets to really have a, a huge edge there. Um, <clears throat> and you, you see this kind of in, in things like even like the presidential election markets where, you know, the prediction people always say, Oh, prediction markets are wrong. Well, it's like, no, the market's just giving you the best prediction with the evidence that it has, but if you look at like if you look at a political election, the market has a good amount of evidence. It has polling data. It has like the statistical analysis that you can run around polls. Um, if you look at like the difference between two different policies, and then you look at the second order effects of that, that's a lot harder to to model. Um, the best example I have of this is a really recent one. If you look at California with all of its wildfires, so obviously that's made air pollution really bad in the state. Um, it just started to clear up in the past couple of weeks, but prior to that, it was really bad. And if you look at like, well, why, why can't people do more controlled burns to basically have a little bit of pollution, but, um, make it so that you don't have these massive blazes. And it's like, well, ironically, um, the clean, the clean air act has made this very like long, like usually, you know, year long plus process to get a permit to do a controlled burn. And it's like, so in this weird kind of ironic way, the clean air act has actually led to less clean air. Uh, in certain areas due, due to this dynamic. And so this, the, my short answer is like, futarchy is like so hard because you have all these unforeseen second order effects of policies that, you know, I don't think markets can actually price that well. That said, I am a believer in markets. and I think they're probably better than, you know, a bunch of politicians and experts sitting in a room. So it's better than nothing, but I don't think it's going to be like this, you know, if futarchy isn't going to be as amazing as Hansen says, even if you had it implemented, is my view for for kind of those reasons. Yeah, got you. Prediction markets uh, were also used in uh, in specific companies where people tried them to uh, to find what the the company should do. Do you think that that is something that we're going to see more and more, or uh, or is something that just uh, doesn't work? Yeah, I think so. I think those are interesting. I've actually heard about that a, a couple times. Um, and what I've heard anyway from those from those stories is that they do actually work, um, but that the companies eventually end up migrating off of them because for political reasons, like you know, management doesn't end up liking what the prediction market says, um, yeah. and uh, and so. I, but I th I think you will have more companies use them, you know, um, especially as like. As time gets on and, and things are more kind of tech companies and tech driven, um, you, you'll eventually you eventually have management that's more comfortable with being wrong. You know, because that's like that's just the nature of technology is you you have to be wrong and make a lot of mistakes before you get things right. And so, I, I could see kind of you know maybe the next generation of companies um, starting to use prediction markets a bit more than you know companies did say twenty years ago, where corporate culture was very different. You know, there's this huge aversion to being wrong versus like today, you know, if you're a tech CEO, um, it's okay to be wrong and 
and if, if you're not wrong once in a while, you're probably being too conservative anyways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, what you're saying is just uh, showing that people uh, do not accept seeing the truth. I mean, if uh, sometimes it can be hard to uh, to to have the, the 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 truth like that so clearly, but um, yeah, as you, as you just said, I mean, uh, if you just want the company to succeed, you need to be uh, to be ready to accept uh, to accept the hard truth. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. Uh, what do you think is going to be the, the the future right now for for prediction market? Facebook recently launched uh, forecast. And and how do you see things play out in the in the next five years, let's say five to ten years? Yeah, and the forecast thing is cool. Um, yeah, I don't know what what they actually intend to do with it long term, but um, I can maybe they'll maybe they'll use it as a way to kind of minimize fake news on the platform or something. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what they're thinking there, but I think uh, prediction markets in general over the next five years. So I think I think they're going in the direction of you know decentralized prediction markets. I think are kind of the next logical place that the space goes. Um, I think if you look at that, you know, there's a bunch of different approaches to it. Um, you know, there's other people besides just Augur working on it. Um, but I would say, you know, Augur is probably the only one, maybe like one exception, um, that really has this this kind of key focus on making it actually decentralized end to end, which is really important. I'm a super practical person and I'm not like a decentralization purist at all, but prediction markets are one of the things that really does need to be decentralized. It's, it's like a public infrastructure. It's a marketplace. Um, it really does make sense for these things to be as decentralized as something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And so if you look at that, you know, the last five years is like building this stuff out so that it was sort of functional, but like tough to use, um, not that accessible. Um, not that liquid due to various kind of scalability hurdles, user experience hurdles, that kind of stuff. I think the next, you know, three or four years is about making it very easy to use and approachable where the experience for it feels just as good as a centralized site, even though none of it is is centralized. And that's where I think you can start to build liquidity. Uh, you can start to have kind of this open, true, you know, free market. Um, I think the odds will actually be better We've actually started to see this just kind of very, very early, even on Augur. Um, like if you look at back to the 28 midterm elections in the United States, the odds on Augur were less volatile and were actually um, more accurate uh, than than other sites. And like you can measure accuracy in a few different ways. Like you can measure accuracy like based on how the odds correlate to where like the statistical models are going to be in the next day or two. So like how well does does the market predict what your stats model is going to say a day or two from now is a good metric. And like Augur was more accurate than, than pretty much anybody else out there. Now, maybe, maybe that was luck, but, um, and just a coincidence, or maybe it was actually like, there is something to be said for having this sort of open kind of global marketplace. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I see it going. I think it'll start off with kind of you know, more popular things that people like to bet on, like politics and crypto and, and stuff like that. And then we'll later expand uh, to kind of the more interesting markets that we've talked about, where it's sort of more niche. But once you have a liquidity of a lot of users, in a lot of users, you can then start expanding into areas where um, it's a bit more niche, but the information is a lot more exciting. Yeah, talking about the niche, uh, niche stuff, 
Um, are there any other uh, underappreciated application of prediction markets uh, that we didn't mention already? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's there's so many different applications uh, of them. I had a list somewhere at one point, and it's like you know there's like hundreds. Um, you know they're really interesting for making like just kind of weird forecasts. Like, and this one's not like a world changing one or anything, but it's like you could use them for like you could use them to like predict like what fashion trends are going to be popular next year. You could use them to predict um, whether like say you're a drug development company and you have like three drugs that are ready to enter phase three trials, but you only have funding um, to put one of them through. You can kind of publish all the data that you have and, and all the phase two data and let the market basically predict which one you think is more like more likely to succeed uh, as a result of a phase three trial. And you could run that internally or you could actually open it up to like the entire global market. Um, there's like, you know, you could use it to predict like certain like sales forecasts and things like that. So you can envision, you know, say there's like a company out there, you don't necessarily want to buy their stock because um, maybe you're not that confident in what's going to happen to their stock, but say you're very confident that the revenue is going to grow 2x over the next year. Uh, you could have prediction markets on like specific things about companies like that, where it's like um, something that kind of like narrows the space of what you're actually betting over. Um, it's, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, I could go on for hours just listing random things like this, but, um, I think, uh, that's kind of the power of prediction markets is there are these generic tools that let you make financial markets really on anything. Um, another example that's kind of more interesting is you could have financial markets on like whether a certain smart contract will be hacked or not. And then you could basically hedge against that risk by betting in the market. Um, that's one that like might actually be useful for crypto projects. That's super powerful. So now I guess the question is, uh, is how do we get wide adoption? I mean, do, do you think that just with the price going down is going to be, is going to be automatic to get wide adoption? Or do you think that we really need kind of a, a mindset shift where people really start betting on all these things? Yeah, I think you, I think you need both. So I think like, so there's like the price of using things does need to go down. I think that is like one ingredient for getting people who, who just like betting on random things like um, people who like betting on politics, sports, crypto, um, who are sort of already in the mindset of regularly betting for them, you basically need the price to go down. And then you also need you need liquidity. So you need people who are kind of market making on on certain markets. Um, and there is interest from people to do that. Like um, in Augur V1, people did that. Um, right now, the cost of using it is just so expensive that market making is pretty cost prohibitive. But and it's also slow. So if you look at like um, that fare, you know, you can do a trade in a second there. On Augur, it takes, you know, 30 seconds. And so you have like this this time risk too, uh, which is actually in many cases bigger than the cost issue. And so once um, these scalability problems are solved and you can also do a trade on Augur in about a second, then people can basically make these market-making bots that like bet on Augur and hedge on Betfair and in the reverse as well. And then I think it'll be much easier for liquidity to form Versus right now, if you do that, you're taking a, a huge amount of risk. And like actually in practice, you'll probably lose lose money doing that um, or best case break even. And so like really it should be you, you actually make money market making. Um, and so I think we've got to fix those problems to make that happen. The second half of the question is like, you know, does there need to be kind of a more cultural shift in terms of people being more comfortable with betting? 
and I think um, I think so. I think that's starting to happen though. Like if you look at Robinhood, um, the the um, brokerage app, you know, a lot of that is essentially just betting. Is people buying options on companies because they think it's going to go up, and they don't have like um, a super super thought through reason for it, uh, but they think they have some piece of information that's that's going to make them make money on it, and so I think society's getting more comfortable with, with the idea of betting, even if it's not called that. And so it's only sort of natural that like a lot of those users probably um, have views on other subjects as well. And if there is a place where they could pretty easily express those views and make money if they're right, um, I think they would do it. You know, it's just about building awareness and liquidity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, uh, the the stock market and prediction market are, are pretty similar. I mean, I, I I don't really see the the, the difference. It's just a term of uh, it's just a matter of of different words. And, and and words bring this connotation of uh, of you know people betting uh, on uh, or going to the to the casino, and this is only the this is the only thing that that, that I think is um, is the main limit here. And how do you think of the the social aspect of uh, of it? Do you think that uh, there, there, there's going to be a, a main a huge social element to uh, to betting, or is it going to be something that people do uh, uh, by themselves? Yeah, I think. Um... I think there will be a social, there is going to be a social element to it. Um, it's sort of something that people already, you know, kind of, kind of do together. Um, whether it's people who, who bet on sports together, you know, with their friends or, um, you know, or politics. Um, it's something that people like to talk about because like, if you win, you kind of get this bragging rights, like you, you both get the money obviously, but you also get, you know, this kind of credibility where like you were right. Um, with your friends and and that's like something people like. So I think, yeah, I think there will be a social element too. One other question that I, that I had was uh, around health insurances because basically health insurance are also bet uh, on the, on your health. Uh, do you think that prediction market is something that's going to also enter the, the, the realm of health insurances and, and insurances more generally uh, or, or not, or you don't see any application there? I think that one would be that one would be tough because because like well insurance is like pretty it's pretty regulated but also it's just um, the more like specific you get with the market the the harder it is to form liquidity so like for instance like you know it'd probably be a very long time before anybody or if ever if there's ever like health insurance markets per person using prediction markets um, I think the, the applications of health in prediction markets you could see things like um, you can see things like, you know, betting on certain drugs, whether they'll succeed or not. Um, like you could definitely see a market on like when there'll be a COVID vaccine. Um, I think there already are some of those on, on Ethereum. Um, there'd be markets on like, of, you know, say Moderna, Pfizer, the Oxford trial and whatever the other ones are, um, which one will get approved first. Um, you know, which one will have like a higher efficacy versus placebo. Uh, those are things that, that are like pretty easy to do and natural with prediction markets in healthcare. Um, and then uh, let's see what else. The, those, those are like kind of the things off the top of my head. Um, as you get more specific and more like specific to a specific person or like region, then the liquidity starts to dry up. So that's like the main thing to keep in mind with prediction markets. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So we're going to have to wait a long time before that uh, to happen. I want you to also know uh, what are you most excited about in the in the crypto field in general, and not necessarily prediction markets, but just in general. 
Yeah, I think, um, so I'm really excited about, obviously I'm really excited about the scalability stuff, you know, actually, actually starting to happen. Um, the other thing that I'm excited about is, um, basically like, uh, all, all the stuff happening in DeFi. So like, um, these decentralized lending protocols like compound and Aave, where you can basically, you know, lock up your crypto and then borrow, uh, against it. Um, I think it's really fascinating because you can borrow, you can get these loans, you know, anytime, um, you know, and there's no, like, you always just get approved because it's, it's collateral backed. So it's really interesting. Um, I also like the decentralized exchange space. I think, um, you know, this concept of like, you have these decentralized exchanges that let you basically trade anything. Um, and, uh, they're very low fee and they're like super simple to use. I think that's a really interesting area. Uh, like Uniswap actually did the same amount of volume as, as Coinbase in September, which is really exciting. Um, outside of that, I think, uh, like other people working on similar kind of like synthetic financial markets. I think that stuff is interesting. That's, that's kind of like, whether it's prediction markets or other stuff, I think that area is kind of the area I've always been the most excited about. Um, just because it's not just within crypto, like you're betting on things that exist in the real world, um, which is super fascinating to me. Yeah. I want to switch here a little bit and, and talk more uh, geopolitics. So Bruno Machais, uh, the author of uh, History Has Begun, recently wrote a piece about the, the crypto state. And, uh, you know, he made the case that a lot of people are talking about, uh, you know, is China going to become the, the, the main actor uh, on a global scale or is the U.S. going to remain uh, the number one? And he, he proposed in this piece uh, the case where we would, uh, instead of having one global power that's a country, we would go towards uh, crypto states. Uh, is it something that uh, you think is going to happen or, or not? That's an interesting one. Um, I should definitely read that. I haven't. I haven't read that. Um, I'd say probably probably not. I mean, I think I think you'll have like, you know, you'll have this group of people who own, um, who own crypto globally, but um, and, it, and it's sort of like a a tribe, I guess, of people, right? Um, that are kind of all unified by that concept. But I think it's sort of it's closer to like it's closer to like Catholicism or something where like people are unified by having like one faith in the case, in the case of Catholicism, um, with crypto, people are unified by the, like the fact that they own it and are excited about it and that sort of thing. But I don't think like, I don't think there'll be like a specific, you know, nation or anything like that that gets created around it. Um, I think, you know, China and the U S are probably going to be, um, sort of the kind of do du dual, uh, world powers for, for quite some time. Um, I think, uh, I think if you look at like, you know, China's demographics, like their, their growth rate is eventually going to start to, to kind of taper off. And, um, like, it's not like, it's just going to like blast past the, the U S and then just like grow exponentially and become like, you know, the British empire or something. I think that's, that's incredibly unlikely. Um, but instead I think we're going to have like this kind of duopoly, uh, scenario. And then you'll have crypto, which, which basically, enables people to do a lot of interesting things from a financial standpoint and increases economic freedom globally, um, sort of irrespective of the fact that you have China, which is which probably eventually tries to expand their reach. Um, you've already seen some mentionings of that with uh, 
with like the DCEP or whatever, like the digital version of the yuan. Um, and the the main central banker in China, I, I don't remember his name, but you know, he was saying how uh, he thinks they should actually loosen capital controls so they can basically promulgate the spread uh, of the of their currency kind of globally. And so, I think crypto is sort of is sort of a counter to that in a sense. Like, I'd much rather own Bitcoin than that. Um, I'd also much rather own digital dollars, you know, than than digital version of the RMB. Um, and so I think that's what crypto is useful for. It's kind of providing this like exit option uh, yeah. for where to put your financial assets. Um, so yeah, that's how I think about it. Yeah, fascinating. One last question for you, Joey. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, underrated books and I wanted to ask you what are uh, the, the, the underrated books that, uh, that you really enjoyed? Oh yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, hmm, let's see. So I think... Uh, So one book is this, this is book called uh, Crazy Good, um, which is about it's about the story of like this uh, this harness racing horse called uh, Dan Patch, um, who is basically like the sort of like a celebrity um, in the most like successful harness racing horse of all time. And it kind of goes through the story of like his owners, how like it happened. I think it happened in the early 1900s in the United States. Um, it's just like a super interesting uh, book. Um Outside of that, let's see what else. Um, the Alchemist is a very good book, but it's like everybody knows that one. Um, there's another book called, uh, there's a really kind of random book that's interesting, I think. It's called um, Getting Rich and Rising Asia. Uh, it came out like oh, maybe 10 years ago at this point. I'm not sure. And it's about, it's basically in the second person. So it, it refers to like, it's like you do this and you do that or whatever. Um And it's a story of like this entrepreneur, uh, in, in basically in Asia, um, who gets successful and like goes through all these different things. And it's, it's kind of an interesting book. That's like, um, it was like a critically acclaimed at the time, but like nobody I know has actually read it or remembers it or anything. And it's, it's an interesting book. Yeah. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you would like to say, ask or recommend to, uh, those people listening before we come to a close? No, I think, I, mean, I think the only other thing I would say is, um, you know, if you want to learn more about Augur, you know, you can go to augur.net. If you want to reach me, um, you can just ping me on Twitter. I'm pretty accessible there. It's just my name, at Joey Krug on Twitter. Um, that's probably the best way to get in contact with me. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the, in the description. Well, Joey, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Long Game Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey again, it's Meiji. Before you leave, I want to tell you about what we're building at Lifetizer. When it comes to health, Lifetizer believes in prevention and optimization. There's no reason to guess what works for you anymore when you can read the messages your body tries to tell you. At Lifetizer, we help people optimize their blood glucose levels through nutrition and exercise to improve how you feel, how you sleep, to get better health and optimize your longevity. Check it out at lifetizer.io and sign up for early access to the private beta. That's all for today, friends, and thank you so much for listening.